Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. Oh, come on. You got to say it back. Happy New Year, everyone. There you go. I know it sounds weird, but in the church, Advent is the beginning of our year, not the end of our year. Um, This is the beginning of the new liturgical calendar, and whenever you start a new calendar, that means you start a new year because that's how calendars work. And so um, we are celebrating a new year of our relationship with Jesus Christ, and this is an opportunity for us to do a little bit of refreshing um, while also celebrating the Christmas season. We are doing a part two of a series that we started, that we did last year. You may remember this. We went through some of the hymns of Christmas. We talked about their origin, but we also talked about how the scriptures speak to us through those hymns. And we're going to be doing something similar today. And uh, we're also going to be not just looking at these songs, but we're going to be looking at Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus Christ. So the Matthew account of Christ's nativity is our text for the next few weeks as we celebrate together the birth of Jesus Christ. Our text today is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. I'll be referencing earlier verses as well. And I was very tempted, very tempted to find a volunteer and make them read the genealogy on the spot with no prep time. But uh, I am a merciful pastor. I will not do that to you. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this season. And we thank you that the church through the years has decided that this is when we begin. That we begin focused on the hope we have in Jesus Christ in this season leading up to Christmas where we celebrate the birth of our Savior, a season of anticipation, of waiting, but Lord, of waiting with joy and with hope and with love and with peace in our hearts. Lord, all of these things coming from you because you have loved us first. So Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Christmas came in my house when the music began. That was just how it worked. Uh, I think my mom waited until the day after Christmas, or Thanksgiving, excuse me, to play the music. But I, I wouldn't be surprised, knowing my mom, if she snuck a few extra days there on the front. And here's the thing. My mom is Welsh. Uh, In fact, I have dual citizenship. I'm a royal subject because my mom was born and raised in Wales. And so, because of this, 
um, she celebrates not just one day of Christmas, but the 12 days of Christmas. This is a part of British culture. You do 12 days. It doesn't mean you get 12 days off work. Don't have to be too jealous. Um, but it is. Like, Christmas is not just one day and then you're over, but it's a season. It's 12 days, and it begins with Christmas Day and doesn't end for another 12. It doesn't, like, start 12 days ahead, which means the Christmas music would continue beyond Christmas for at least 12 days. She would milk this for all that it was worth. She loved it. And as a kid, to be honest, I wasn't wild about it. Um, I've grown up with music. I love music. Anything I can do to get around music, I'm in. But for some reason, Christmas music just didn't hit the same, and I I didn't like it. It was too much. But as I've gotten older, and particularly COVID did this to me, when I realized I really just need something happy during this pandemic, I've become a little less bah humbug about Christmas music. I've begun to enjoy it more and more, and yes, my family is going to be subjected. I waited till after Thanksgiving, but they will be subjected to regular bouts of Christmas music showing up from time to time. And so I really enjoyed this series last year when we went through some of these Christmas hymns and talked about where they came from and learned from them. We're even going to be looking at a couple of those same hymns this time. But we start today with a different song, a song that's not necessarily considered a Christmas hymn, but is a hymn from the 19th century that I think really gets at the simplicity of what this season is about. Now, it's not a song that we're going to do regularly here, so I'm just going to sing it for us, if that's okay. They're going to show the lyrics on the screen behind me so that you're able to follow along. And if you know it, I know you'll probably know the chorus if you've been in the church for a while, because I knew the chorus. I didn't even know there were verses to this thing until we start, until I looked it up. But uh, this song is called, Oh, How I Love Jesus. First time I heard it was sung by Randy Travis. Carrie Underwood does a pretty cool version as well, and we're just going to give this a shot and see what we can come up with. Like I said, didn't even know there were verses, so if I get the melody wrong, I don't think any of you are going to know it. That's fine. That's good. It's a hymn that has, like most hymns, an interesting backstory. I found the story about this hymn from a a Methodist historian. He's a music historian. How cool is that for a job? He's a professor of sacred music, or he's now emeritus. He was for the longest time at the Perkins School of Theology at SMU. His name is C. Michael Hahn. And there's a apparently directory of hymnology that's out there from 1907. Directory of hymnology. I barely even knew what the word hymnology was going into this. But there was a whole directory, and that directory notes that this song was originally titled The Name of Jesus, and it was first printed back in 1855 in the form of hymn sheets and leaflets. It was later included in a collection called Sacred Poems and Prose by the author of the song, Frederick Whitfield. Now, Frederick Whitfield was a a British pastor. He spent most of his time serving the Anglican church, but he also wrote about 30 different poems that were later set to music. Now, the original poem didn't include that chorus that has become kind of a campfire tune, um, the Oh, How I Love Jesus part. That shows up later. 
Um, we're not sure when, but it's also in the 18th, uh, 19th century. We know Dwight Moody used to love this song and have it played at his different revival meetings. And we're not even sure when the tune was solidified because there are various tunes that are used, including the tune Amazing Grace or Alas, Did My Savior Bleed. But we do know that this song really became popular in the United States because of that chorus. Oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. It was added in a time of revival in a time when the church of Jesus Christ was starting to see more and more people come to Christ. And so this refrain really is sung regularly without the verses because of the simplicity of what it says, Oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. Now that chorus you may recognize as a somewhat personalized quote from 1 John 4, 19, which says, We love because he first loved us. And how has he shown us this love? How has God shown us that he loves us? It's through Christ, Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is really at the core of the faith that we hold to. God loves us. And the proof of his love is displayed writ large in Christ, particularly in his death. But you can't have his death in a vacuum without the rest of who Jesus is. You also have to have his resurrection. You have to have his ascension, a day that by the time I die will be a celebration in the church of Jesus Christ, I hope. We don't celebrate ascension day and we really should. It's a cool day. He's currently reigning. He will return again. We need his life if we're going to have his death, which means we also need his birth. He came to save sinners, and the way he saved sinners was for, by dying for them and rising again. The advent of Jesus Christ, from his miraculous conception till the day he returns to bring us all home, is a gift given to us from our Father in heaven, and it is a gift of love. Oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. Jesus is the perfect expression of God's love for his creation and for his people foremost. Jesus is the embodiment of God's love for us. And that brings us to our text. We're in Matthew chapter 1 today, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. Note the historical claim here. Matthew is very clear that he is writing down actual historical events. This isn't mythology. There's a way of writing mythology. This isn't it. This isn't a fable. This isn't a story that's based on a true story. But he says, this is how it happened. This is how Jesus of Nazareth was actually born. Our faith is rooted in history. Now, we have access to this history because of the Scriptures. It's why we cling to the Scriptures, why we believe they're the infallible Word of God to us. 
given to us by the Holy Spirit. But this is not a holy book that is kind of dropped out of heaven. This book is tethered to the historical events that actually took place. Christianity is not merely a faith claim then. It's a claim about history. We don't believe in a myth. And we don't believe in just some good rules of thumb. We believe that Jesus was actually a human being who was born and who died and who rose again in history. We also believe that this man, Jesus Christ, was not only a man, but is God himself taken on flesh to dwell among us. This is a historic truth, not merely a faith claim. Now, we must have faith to believe in it, but we believe in something that is rooted in fact. This is historically true. Jesus was born in this way. And to really emphasize the historic reality of Christ's birth, Matthew begins his gospel with what is, for us in our day, the most boring possible intro, a genealogy. Now, I could have preached on the genealogy. That would have been boring. That would have put us all to sleep. But I don't want us to ignore it. If you have your Bible open, look back at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He then, beginning with Abraham, builds up all the way through to his own birth. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So Jesus has a lineage. There's a genealogy here. This is vital for the historical verification of somebody actually being alive. If you are a first century Jew, your genealogy means everything because it's how you trace yourself back into the time of the patriarchs to show that you are truly a son of Abraham. But Jesus is not only truly Jewish, a son of Abraham, he's also a son of David, the king, which means he is the heir of David. Right up front, Matthew makes a claim about who Jesus is. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David. He is the king we've been waiting for, the Messiah. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It actually happened. There's a genealogy that proves where he came from that gives us a glimpse into his identity. Now, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This is a miraculous claim. There's a historical claim. Now there's a miraculous claim. The claim is, very clearly, that Joseph is not the father of Mary's baby. But then takes it one step further to say there is no earthly father of Mary's baby, but that she is found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This is a miraculous conception. And because we've already rooted it in history, we haven't suddenly floated off into the realm of myth. There are those who would say that the birth of Jesus Christ is a mythical tale to tell the story about a really cool rabbi that lived in the first century. 
But that can't be true. Matthew's already rooted this in the historical record. He's making a miraculous claim about something that actually happened, which is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, a miraculous conception. Now, this conception causes problems for Joseph. Because here's the thing, Mary and Joseph are not idiots. They know how babies are made. And Joseph, up to this point, has not been let in on the secret that this is a miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. He's betrothed to this woman. This woman becomes pregnant. And he believes that she's cheated on him. That she has broken the betrothal vows. You see, when you become betrothed in the first century, it is much more final than our version of an engagement in this culture. People break off engagements all the time. But to break off a betrothal is a massive deal, particularly in a tiny town like Nazareth where everybody knows everybody's business. I grew up in one of those towns. You couldn't turn the wrong way down a street without everybody knowing about it. Everybody knows their business. Everybody knows Joseph is engaged to be married to Mary. Mary's now pregnant, and Joseph's not the father. Which is why Joseph responds the way that he does. Her husband, Joseph, notice he's called a husband here even though they're not even married yet. That gives you an idea of the finality of a betrothal arrangement. Her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, this is a legal claim that Matthew's making, that Joseph could have, in his rights, divorced her. More than that, under the law of Moses, this constitutes adultery. And Mary could have been killed for what she had done. It would have been within the rights of legal authorities to have her put to death for committing adultery. And so Joseph knows that if it gets out there widely that she has committed adultery, she might die. And being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolves to divorce her quietly. Let's just do this quickly. Let's do this quietly. Maybe she can get engaged with somebody else really quickly. Maybe we can save her honor. You get a glimpse into the kind of man Joseph is. He's a good man. And even somebody he feels deeply betrayed here. Still, because he is just, does not want to put her to shame and wants to divorce her quietly. It's profound that Joseph is willing to respond to such heartache with such grace. It's an example maybe for us when we feel betrayed. Joseph becomes an example of how to respond to betrayal. Not with revenge, but with graciousness. So there's the legal claim. He wants to divorce her because he doesn't want to have to raise somebody else's child. I understand that. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. A helpful bit of information 
for Joseph. She didn't actually do anything wrong. You don't have to be afraid to marry her. She's innocent. Yes, she's pregnant, but it's a miraculous conception. Notice the angel invokes Joseph's title. Joseph, we know, is a stonemason. That's what he does his day job. He's working in a small town in Nazareth. He's not royalty to anybody who's around, but to the angel, he is Joseph, son of David. He invokes the royal lineage that Joseph owns. And because Joseph owns this, his adopted child would also own it. This is regular in Rome. That if you didn't have an heir, you could adopt somebody to be your heir, and they would actually receive the throne. This would be ways for Caesars to kind of politically decide who they wanted their successor to be. If they didn't like their firstborn, they could simply adopt somebody else, make them the firstborn, and they were given all the rights and privileges of being the Caesar. So even though Joseph is not Jesus's biological father. He is now going to raise Jesus as an adopted son, which means not only is Joseph son of David, but also Jesus legally is son of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I find it in our 21st century way of thinking Fascinating that Matthew doesn't feel the need to explain an angel showing up and talking to Mary and talking to Joseph. It's just fine. It's a normal thing that happened back then, I guess. It's not, but it's supposed to feel otherworldly. It's supposed to feel jarring and surprising. Not only is there the miracle of the conception of Jesus, but now an angel is announcing the birth of this child to the father. What we are receiving in this narrative is an intentional overlapping of the spiritual and the earthly. We are getting things that are rooted in history. That's why we have a genealogy, and that's why Matthew is clear. This is how it actually happened. But in the coming of Christ, we have an intersection between earth and heaven. We talked about a month ago, but our role as the soul of the world and how we are the intersection between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the earth. The reason we perform this task is because we are in Christ, the very body of Christ here on earth. We perform the same function he did in this regard. We are that collision point between heaven and earth. Christ is is the collision point between earth and heaven, the historic and the miraculous, the physical and the spiritual. It is a collision of worlds taking place. Matthew was showing this collision by saying, yeah, there are angels that are actually showing up and speaking. Yes, there is actually a miracle taking place in the conception of Christ. And yes, these things actually happened in history. The scriptures do not allow us to explain this away to pretend or even be embarrassed by these facts. Matthew is showing us, no, this is the birth of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the collision of heaven and earth taking place in a single person. Worlds are colliding. 
So why? Why is, Je- why is God doing something so cosmic in Jesus? Why such a miraculous, universe-rending thing? What's the purpose? Why is Jesus being born in the first place? The answer is simple. It is because of the love of God. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There's a note in the ESV study Bible about the name Jesus. Why does the angel want Joseph to name him Jesus? Well, the name Jesus, this is the study Bible, the name Jesus was given to sons as a symbolic hope for the Lord's anticipated sending of salvation through a Messiah who would purify his people and save them from oppression. Let me read that again. The name Jesus was given to sons as a symbolic hope for the Lord's anticipated sending of salvation through a Messiah who would purify his people and save them from oppression. They were all waiting for a Messiah. And so because they were waiting... While under Roman rule and occupation, while dealing with the oppression not only of the Roman Empire, but also of religious elites at the time who were in bed with Rome and were persecuting their own people through things like tax, way over taxing the people or requiring outrageous religious duty from them before they could come into the temple and worship. They are looking for salvation. They are waiting for a Messiah to come. And so people started naming their children Jesus as effectively a protest of hope. A protest of hope. Think about that for a moment. That when the world is really dark and you feel like there is nothing going right, when there are even governments that are oppressing you, That's what's happening here in the first century. Hope itself is a protest. To refuse to give in to despair. To refuse to allow the pain and awfulness of this world to take our eyes off of Christ and place them on the lesser things is a protest. It is a declaration that things are not the way they should be and one day they'll be fixed. There is hope. True hope because of the Messiah to come. There are seasons in our lives where hope is a protest. When the depression is crippling, hope is a protest. When anxiety keeps you from even wanting to take a step forward, hope is the protest. That depression and anxiety and violence and hatred and fear will not win the day. Christ wins the day. And so in this hope to protest what they were going through, people start naming their children Jesus. And you hear, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. And Joseph, who knows why people are naming their sons Jesus, is probably filling in the blank right there. He will save his people from the oppression of the Roman Empire. Well, yes. Eventually, that's exactly what he did. Rome fell. He will save his people from the abuses of the temple system. Yes, he did. By AD 70, the temple had been destroyed. 
He will save his people from the distortion of Israel's religious life. Well, yes, that's his entire ministry is to right those wrongs and to show the way that things have been distorted and the true way of being a disciple of God. Without question, he does these things. But none of those things are the primary reason why Jesus came. None of those things, while it's true he did them, and while those things are good, they are not the ultimate declaration of divine love. No, the reason why Jesus came was to save his people from their sins. And in so doing, yes, he challenges Roman oppression. In so doing, yes, he challenges the abuses of the religious system of the day. Yes, the way that religion has been distorted to press people down, Jesus hits that head on, but he does so as a fruit of his main purpose to save people from their sins. Salvation from sin, that's why Jesus came. Why do we need to be saved from sin? Why couldn't God just leave us in it? Because he is both a just and a merciful God. Because sin invokes the justice of God. And the justice of God requires that sin be met with death. Sin is the anti-life. It is the participation in those things that are the opposite of God. And God is life. He is the source of all life. And if we participate in sin, those things that are anti-him, that means we are participating in death. And that's what took place in the garden. We participated in death, and then we became death. That is the curse given to all those who are born of Adam. The result of sin is death, and the punishment for sin is an eternal death in hell. I know that hell is not a popular topic no matter what the season, particularly the Christmas season. But the very purpose for Christ's coming is to save his people from their sins and all the punishment that comes with those sins. He came to save us from hell. You see, the punishment for sin is hell, and he could have just left us in our sin. He could have. But that's not what God did. He didn't leave us in our sin to receive the answer for our sin, which is the holy wrath of God against us, demonstrated through eternity in hell. Instead of leaving us to that fate, he sent a rescuer because he loves us. Your salvation in Christ is because of God's love for you. He loves you. That's why he saves you. He made a way for us to be saved from our sins. That's what Christmas is all about. That's why we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. Yes, we celebrate what he did in the world, but the root of our celebration is knowing that we are saved from our sins. That's why we talk about the birth of Jesus as a gift. He's the gift that saves us from our sins and brings us from death to life. So when we read here that you'll call his name Jesus, which really means salvation from the Lord, that's what Jesus means. 
You're going to call your son salvation from the Lord because he will save his people, not just from Rome, not just from temple worship, not just from Pharisees or Sadducees or any nation that is to stand up against the Lord. No, he's going to save them from their very sins and create for them a way into eternal life. This Christmas season, we have an opportunity, I believe, to renew in our hearts an appreciation for the salvation we have in Christ. We are going to celebrate and do all the things we normally do this Christmas season. I hope you do anyway. Sing. Be together with friends and family. Spend that time with one another. Enjoy the season with all of the lights and all of the songs and all of the fun. But the reason he came was not to give us a nice holiday. He came to save us from our sins and from the punishment we deserved for them. We give gifts on Christmas Day as a reflection, an echo of the gift the Father gave to us in Jesus Christ. It was a gift given long before any of us could have possibly known our plight, for it was given 2,000 years before any of us lived. It's a gift that's given to us without our need to ask because in our sin, we don't want to ask God for anything. We enjoy our rebellion against God. And yet, by the power of the Spirit, He gives us the gift of salvation in Christ. He makes us alive together with one another in Christ that we might worship Him forever. This is a gift. Jesus is a gift. And it's a gift given from the very heart of God. It's why it's appropriate to sing a song like, Oh, How I Love Jesus, because He first loved me. What a beautiful declaration of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the good news of the gospel. We thank You that we are able to say, Oh, how I love Jesus. And the reason we love Him is because He first loved us, because He rescued us from our sins. That's why He came. He came to save us. Lord, I pray that as we head towards Christmas, as we wait this Advent for His return, would we wait knowing that we are saved from our sins, saved from hell because we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We are not saved because of any good work. We are not saved because of any religious duty. We are saved because Christ came, because the Son of God took on flesh, dwelt among us, died for our sins, rose again that we might have eternal life. I pray that the gospel would be at the heart of our Christmas celebrations this year. And would we meditate on the profound love you've shown us. You did not leave us in our sin. You did not leave us in despair. But you sent your own Son, our Rescuer, our Redeemer. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.